How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 46 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. Tonight we're talking about being human. You know, kind of what the intro song is all about. You know, how we can be halfway conscious and in monochrome. Or we can live our best life living living free and unabated and having having the rationale behind it. Now our new guest tonight, Thomas Lynn, he you know, he's a friend of a friend. Came by recommendation of our our very own Luke Austin Doherty. You know, Indianapolis's own poet extraordinaire. And Thomas did not disappoint. You know, he is a he's a smart guy. And he's been thinking about this stuff for a while. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna introduce him any further than that. I'm just gonna let him speak for himself so i hope you enjoy all right i want to welcome tom thomas or tom what do you prefer i guess um it's tom is fine all right my dad's my dad's my dad's a tom my middle name is thomas so you know i got an affinity for that name but you know we got tom on on the podcast here tonight and tom came by way of uh, recommendation from Luke Austin Doherty and uh, Luke's our favorite local poet here in Indy. Um, now you are not in Indy. You're, you're over there in Ohio. I understand. Yeah. That's right. Cincinnati, yeah. Ohio, Thomas Leo, Patrick Lynn Jr. See, this is the thing I was sort of thinking about uh, going into the interview is like, how do I identify myself? Right. You no, know, I mean, Am I a thinker? You know, am I a, am I a content creator? Am I whatnot? You know, um, you know, and the, the sort of the whole tension around assuming a role or roles as assembling one's identity and then presenting it through the lens of a brand and all the rest of it, right? And how it's so so problematic, you know. Um, you know, and part of it is that like, and it runs, it's problematic along different vectors. One being is that you don't want to be presumptuous and announce yourself like, oh, I'm a philosopher, yes, you know, or what have you, right? But on the other hand, um, you know, that's, that's one avenue where you get into some stickiness. And then there's another avenue, which is really distinct. And that's how to what degree do you want to cooperate with the dominant discourse? So it's very difficult to avoid the discourse of the brand or the idea that one should have an individual brand or specified identity, which is tailored to identify with certain market demographics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because implicit in that is a whole narrative about the human being which uh, I am inclined to uh, resist uh, mm. as resolutely as I can find the, the courage and, uh, you know, fortitude to resist. Um, uh, 
So, you know, you're, you're, you, Michael, are kind enough to have me on your podcast. But, you know, your listeners might be like, well, you know, what's this guy have to do with the price of tea in China? And uh, <laughs> I mean, I. Uh, a whole lot of nothing, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, I guess a whole, well, I don't want to see, I don't want to say that because I think I might have something to do with the price of tea in China. But the reality is that we all do, right? Okay. We're all. We all do have something to do with what matters. And um, but I think the, the way in which we have something to do with what matters probably differs pretty markedly from what we could infer from dominant conversations, dominant discourses, as it were. So just, I guess, like you said, you want to hit the ground running and I guess here I am. We just yeah. did. Yeah. Well yeah. done. You, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I had a feeling this kind of, this conversation might be, um, you know, a fast one and I can tell it's going to be, so I'm going to take on the role as we, as we discuss, you know, sort of roles and how, how we shouldn't let them, you know, dominate our our lives, but right. I'm going to take the role of, you know, of sort of um, maybe backpedaling and like trying to tease out things as you say them. Cause I can yeah, tell you're, yeah. I can tell you're a fast thinker. So you sort of, you, um, you know, you, you saved me the, the platitude or the courtesy of uh, courtesy, I should say of asking sort of what you would call yourself. You kind of said philosopher. And as you said that, you said it's a silly thing to call oneself. So we, we've already established that. What, I mean, if I can ask, what do you do for a living? Cause not many people can make a living as a philosopher. So if you've done that, I'd be very interested to hear it. Uh, I mean, there are ways of doing it, right? Like what do I do for a living? Well, what I do for revenue which isn't the same thing as making a living as I work for uh, Kroger in a mm -hmm. relatively humble capacity as a cashier. And then I pick up odd jobs here and there. Uh, and I'm in the midst of navigating how I can transition out of those kinds of approaches to acquiring revenue, which is really in this society, almost an existential necessity. Uh, mm -hmm two ways which are more consonant with, uh, you could call it higher callings, uh, mm -hmm. if I can use that figure of speech without in the same moment uh, inviting um, certain sort of theological commitments. Um, now that I'm allergic to such commitments, uh, we should just keep it all open and keep everything with a light touch. You have to think about language. You got to have a light touch about language. Mm. Um, you know, what does it mean to make a living? Uh, and money is a part of the equation. But if you think about it more basically, you're talking about a constellation of needs, physical and psychical, which are only indirectly addressed by money, right? And uh, what we've done is we've entered into a society where the agreements around this very slippery uh, entity we call money are uh, fundamental to uh, addressing those more uh, primary physical and psychical needs.
Um, and it's, it's, it's not an easy question, like teasing that out, right? Um, because it doesn't seem quite right to say we could just, or like just need to abolish money, right? You know, because there are certain advantages which accrue from having something like money, uh, even looked at along merely logistical lines. But clearly money is not around just to uh, produce logistical facilitation. It's clearly intimately connected to uh, term, another problematic term, and that is uh, power, right? Mm -hmm. And money is an index of power, even if they're not the same. And here Run has to come to understand that power is something which operates all over the place. It's not just the power that operates needs to be the state or massive corporate actors, right? There's power in our everyday relationships. Um, and we don't like looking in that directly, um, but it's really incumbent upon us to start doing it. Otherwise we become dominated by that which we have failed to address. Hmm. And uh, even, you know, even going to the grocery store, there's, and, and, you know, all sorts of, you know, power relations, which are implicit and explicit and what's going on, going to the grocery store, you know, uh, how you interact with the cashier, how those, you know, how you interact with the other people, um, you know, in the store. Um, and, and now we live in a particularly, at a particularly bizarre junction where uh, that, largely latent circumstances become explicit because of these, uh, in my mind, um, it's, it's hard, it's hard to be, to, to, to retain a diplomatic term uh, of, of, of uh, comportment here, right? But we have these suggestions as to, you know, uh, what we should do when we go to the grocery store or go in public, uh, how we should, you know, whether we want to wear a mask or something like that. And, and I mean, honestly, I, 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 I want to, 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 to claim that practice as, 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 as not good, okay? <laughs> and, and I'm really like having to exercise self-restraint, not to be really um, vitriolic, because I don't want to alienate people who might feel that it's appropriate to wear a mask or something like that but it does actually come back to around to this question of power. Like what are you quote unquote signaling by wearing a mask, right? And, mm -hmm. and we need to be honest that it is not an innocent gesture. You're not making that decision along merely hygienic grounds. And even if you personally are, let me just encourage you to consider the possibility um, that uh, you have been the receiving end of a discourse which is deceiving you and that any sort of benefit that you think you're deriving from that uh, cloth or paper that you're putting on your face is dramatically outweighed by the demeaning implication that that practice has for people and for our relationships with each other and for our relationships with the world, right? Because the universe the world is not the hostile dystopian place which the 
conversation around masks and this um, this 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 apparent uh, malady. Um, that conversation is, is deeply bankrupt and has very little to do with uh, facticity, right? Mm. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm just running and running, man. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm listening, man. And I think I, I can make sense of what you're saying. Um, <sighs> so this actually connects back to something that we talked about a little bit outside of the conversation, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, I said power, but another word that we might, Sort of drawn to the conversation, the word obligation, right? I've been, I've been very interested in this word obligation as of late. And it, before we go into obligation, if I could, you know, so the last two episodes I did before this one, uh, they were part one and part two lawyers, guns, and money. I don't know if you caught that, but that's from a Warren Zevon song. And for some reason, those three words to me very much, um, I hadn't quite put my finger on it, but it's all about this issue of power. And the argument that I made through these episodes was sort of that if people weren't, if people were perfect, I should say, we would not need lawyers, guns, and money, you know, and that's you know, putting maybe the, um, the hunting, the need for sustenance, whatever, when we're talking about guns in, in a, in a, right. in a, in a metaphorical sense, right. guns as a as a means of of either aggression or defensiveness, one or the other, um, we wouldn't so need like it either way. So, yeah, okay, but when we're talking about the world we're living in today, what you touched on when you're talking about the 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 uh, narrative and the the apocalyptic language that we're bombarded with and the fact that we're expected to fulfill some sort of obligation to the the greater group the larger group the you know humanity as a whole i i think that's where you were headed so i you know i'm happy to pass the baton back to you um you know i i have been teasing out this idea of obligation and how it might um, differ from responsibility, or perhaps there's another word that I haven't quite put my finger on, but that sort of unwarranted obligation is a serious problem, um, both for our culture and for like many of our personal relationships right now, I believe. Um, so yeah, I guess I'd be curious to hear your thoughts from there. Well, the only thing I was thinking, I mean, you know, I have this curious relationship with the, the idea of guns. I personally don't like guns personally, but I think everyone is entitled to have a gun. And uh, this is kind of tangential, right, to the, the main conversation. But just as long as I, I started the tangent, I'll draw it out quickly. You know, um, the great failure, a great failure of the so-called left. And I say the so-called left because the left, I say from like the early 80s onward has in, in America, it just betrayed its roots, okay? And one of the, the, its great failures was to come out against uh, guns, uh, pretty stalwartly. And, um, and, and, and I say it's betrayed its own moorings because, 
you know, the, the root of the left, really that in our sense of, you know, left versus right is in the French Revolution and in the American level revolution and in, 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 in historical moments where there was a recognition that the state must be constrained. And uh, for, it's not pretty, but one means of constraining the state is denying it an absolute monopoly over the so-called legitimate use of force. Um, and in other that's words, why the in other words, physical power, just physical, uh, you know, physical. on the ground, physical power, right? Which is not pretty, but it's, there it's, it is. it's terribly ugly. Truthfully, anybody um, who's ever gone hunting understands how visceral the act of of killing is in a in a not so lovely way right it's 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 brutal there's reasons we have these words in our language it's because of reality right yes yes so um and i don't want to get too far down that particular um street of consideration sure i just, I just want to like remind people the fact that the black panthers are armed mm -hmm. the black panthers were a left-wing, a radical left-wing organization that had a very positive influence on the outcome of the civil rights struggle and on the communities in which they were situated. And one of the reasons they were able to do that is because the police were hesitant to molest them mm -hmm. because they were armed. Hell yeah, they were hesitant. This, those guys had 12-gauge shotguns and carbines. Yeah, they weren't messing around. I mean, right? And so the, we're talking about people who are died in the world, oftentimes Marxists, okay? You know, so the whole idea that the right is, you know, I mean, the American left today is fallen far, fallen far and completely forgotten its its own history. You know, it's forgotten mm -hmm. about the, uh, the, 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 the labor wars of the 20th century, the Cold Wars, you know, they forgot what the labor movement was. They forgot what unions used to be when they were hmm. radical, okay? And they forgot about one thing that they knew, which was that the state needs to be constrained. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, so <laughs> thanks for letting me get on my little hobby. Yeah, thing. well, you know, I guess if, back I could like, ask, if I could ask you real quick, Yes. Only because I think the listener is probably wondering, like, who is this guy? We jumped in really fast. So if you, I mean, I know you're interested in existentialism. Do you define yourself politically in any specific way? I would identify, if I mean, like, I've become increasingly reticent of all labels. Sure. But if I'm like, you know, going to be pushed into push into a corner about it right um i would identify as an uh anarcho-communist mm -hmm. uh or uh and uh which is a word which sounds really weird to the american ear and that's because or a libertarian communist right mm -hmm. sounds weird to the american ear because uh, our understanding of what it is to be libertarian differs very much from what goes on in England and Europe just because of historical uh, curiosities. Um, and they're like, how can you possibly be both a libertarian and a communist? 
and it wasn't really an issue up until the 20th century. In fact, they were seen, they, they, they share a common vision, anarchists and communists, until the unfortunate fallout in the end of the 19th century between Karl Marx and um, Mikhail Bakunin. And it was over the issue of the state where uh, Marx and the communists believed that the state was something to be seized and used as an instrument to dissolve dominant class relations. The anarchists believed that the state was simply to be dissolved and that one can't have anything to do with it. Well, right? and that, it, that it's an instrument of, uh, of class that, dominance, right? right like it, inherently. Yes, yeah, yes. that is like the fundamental distinction. But in both cases, the belief is that ultimately you move beyond the state, the so-called withering away of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's lamentable that that disagreement led, led to such a schism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know enough about it. I'm just giving you like the, bre- the broad brushstrokes. The reason mm-hmm. I'm an anarchist communist, an anarcho-communist or libertarian communist is because I'm committed to two terms which stand in tension, but which need each other. And those terms are freedom and equality or egality. Mm-hmm. Or you might say there's three terms to go back to the French Revolution and that would be, they say the fraternity, right? You could also say solidarity. Mm. So um, liberty, equality, fraternity, liberty, equality, uh, solidarity, right? Um, they, 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 they tie, they're, they're all connected, right? We, if we don't give each other the space to breathe, then we're done. But mm. if we don't <laughs> hang together, then we're all going to hang separately, right? To, to yeah. remember the order to paraphrase Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin. And you can't really hang together unless you realize that, that, that term of fundamental egality. And there's a social, a relational fabric which underwrites that. Unfortunately, a lot of that language has lost its original potency because of the manner in which it's been abused mm. by propaganda over and through the generations. You know, what does it really mean to be free? Now it sounds sort of like a hollow slogan. What the um, hell does equality mean anymore? You know, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, not, not that there are any easy questions, right? So if you ask me, mm-hmm. who is this guy? You know, I'm a guy, I'm a guy from the hard left, okay? Well, sure, I said hard sure. left, like hard old school left, okay? Um, pretty sort of pacifist in disposition, all right? So I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to exhort uh, people or to, to, to suggest that violence should, 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 should be used. Um, but, you know, I have to recognize that circumstances arise where, where, um, where it becomes almost exigent, almost a physical necessity. Mm-hmm. And so like, let me point out something about those circumstances. They are situations where freedom has disappeared. Mm-hmm. When you have reduced the terms of engagement, to terms of force, it's no longer about choice or freedom. You are giving yourself over to the accidents of violence, which means you have vacated the domain of rationality. You have, you have vacated the domain of civilization. Um, and if, if there are people who are pushing us into circumstances that have that aspect, you got to ask, why are you giving those people such power? 
And how do you deprive them of that power? And that's where non-compliance and autonomy become absolutely quintessential. You know, you're, you're making me think about the fact that it seems to me like I can find common ground with anybody and most rational people would have a hard time arguing with anything you just said. And it really doesn't matter if you're a left-leaning thinker or a right-leaning thinker. You know, and I, I struggle between these, these two, you know, seeming, you know, poles or whatever. I almost think we should not, not hold ourselves to uh, one side or the other, obviously. And that's, that's right. kind of, that's kind of a tarried old line or whatever, but I, I, I appreciate the fact that someone can use the words libertarian and communist in the same sentence, in the same phrase, without the least bit of irony, because why not, right? And I think, you know, we, we pitched this conversation, you and I, as sort of maybe the, the central theme being how to talk to people with differing points of view. But to me, that's, I mean, that's not quite, that's not quite the topic we discussed. We discussed, discuss, you know, talking to people who were heavily influenced by the mainstream narrative. And I guess these are two separate propositions. I can talk to people that I have differing opinions with, without any issues whatsoever. But when I talk to somebody who's so clearly blinded uh, by, by propaganda, I mean, it's so obvious to me that we're being lied to, but it seems to me the majority of people still buy it. So is that, I mean, is that what you're seeing? I mean, from your humble perspective, you know, scanning barcodes at the Kroger, are most people still buying the narrative or is it is it shifting? I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know. And like, you know, I have to confess that I didn't like really so far just, you know, I'm just sort of talking like off the cuff. So I have yeah, I can tell, I can I tell. I haven't That's used, cool. uh, with particular discipline to that theme that we did suggest. And, and it's probably going to be useful to bring it back to that theme. <laughs> You're right. There's absolutely a distinction. Um, between addressing people with whom one disagrees, where there's already sort of, it's like two different games, like you're playing two different kind of language games there, not to be unduly uh, Wittgensteinian about it, right? You know, I've heard it said it's like we're watching um, two different movies, right? So the same word or the same story can mean can, completely different things to different people right now. We're watching two different movies. The script is the same, but the movie is different, right? Something of that nature. So, so what we're talking about is how do you address, how do I address someone? How do I address you if you have, I mean, I have a feeling that most of your listenership is outside of this cohort, right? But how do you know, if you are convinced 
or if you are persuaded by what you hear on NPR, let's say, okay, or if you think MSNBC is uh, reliable, or if the New Yorker is a place to, you know, get your sense of reality, or the Washington Post, um, I. I have to confess that I don't think I can have a conversation with you if you're without making you emotionally uncomfortable mm -hmm. because those outlets minimally are providing you with a deeply inadequate conversation. They are providing you with incomplete and impoverished information. And, and in fact, when you look, when, when I have looked at the contours of that incompleteness, at the topography of that efficiency, it is difficult not to suspect a, a, a backdrop of deceptive intent. There's incompetence, there's malfeasance, there's bureaucracy, all the rest of it, but it's so egregious. The, the, it's hard to imagine it was an accident. The, the, it's, 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 it's so hard to believe that there are not people at the upper echelons of these organizations who are willing to actively deceive you. And if you don't want to believe that, you don't want to confront with that suggests about your worldview, then you probably shouldn't talk with me. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. All right. Because it's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to consider that these people that you have implicitly thought to be respectable are actually complicit in some real darkness. Okay. What you and might call of, evil. Yeah. Of, of course, you know, it's different depending on where you are, like in the situation, right? Most of these people I think are perfect. Like, you know, what is, what does, um, you know, what does Brian Williams think? What does Wolf Blitzer as a person like actually think? Okay. You know, I don't, I, I mean, they're so deep in the system that I believe that they are effectively hypnotized and that there's kind of sincerity, which may, insulate them from their guilt okay but i mean it's just it's just uncomfortable you, you come to certain points you're like look um i don't know what to tell you but, but you're wrong okay about something yeah, yeah right and and there are people who are not going to want to go along with that you know um people do reach i think people reach like a certain threshold of challenge in terms of what they think um, and like letting challenging thoughts in before they shut it down at a like subconscious level. You know, I was at the bar tonight and I got into this conversation with a couple of guys and um, I don't know how we got on this subject, but we were talking about public schools and I was just kind of making the argument that it's like, well, you know, I think there's not really a good corollary for public schools except for prisons, because like when else 
in modern society are, are people, you know, basically forced against their will to be around folks that they, they don't have the freedom to simply walk away from. Right. Right. I mean, we, we, you can make the argument, well, you know, it's preparing them for work and you don't, you don't always like the people you work with. And, you know, you Even don't that though, is but you completely can, dissimilar. Dissimilar. From, yes. It is not dissimilar. Like work itself is a kind of bondage, right? Well, sure, sure. And, and in fact, wage slavery was a common turn of phrase up until the early 20th century, because you know what? It is slavery. The only difference now is that you're just rented instead of owned. Mm. Okay. I'm being a bit hyperbolic there. Well, but, but it's not, not so wrong. hyperbolic, yeah. but you're pointing at something which is very important. You know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, right? that's okay. Go but ahead. Like Michel Foucault, uh, birth of the prison. Right. And one thing he points out there in terms of the prison, which is a relatively modern institution, we don't really have prisons and, Anyway, like them are until like the 18th century. They don't have prisons like we understand them until the mid 19th century, right? They're very recent inventions. Yeah, we think that they're they've been with us all of history. Okay, and that's just not the case, right? But he points out that there's an architectural analogy. If you go into a hospital, if you go into a school, if you go into a prison. You go into many office spaces, there's the an architectural same. analogy amongst those vicinities. And why is that the case? Because they are places where power is being exercised to create a particular kind of self. Mm. And the uh, trope which Foucault invokes in that book is actually originated by Jeremy Bentham the panopticon okay the panopticon is actually originally i know about this it's the prison isn't it the prison, prison. where you the can be prison. seen at all times right right but the key thing is that you're not necessarily being seen at all times there's just the potentiality yes. that's actually crucial because it creates this tension in you as a subject you don't know if you're being watched or not and in many cases, this actually wins a greater degree of compliance than if you just knew that you were constantly being uh, surveilled. Because mm -hmm. then, then, you know, if you're just aware of it as a constancy, you're actually more likely to just defy it than if you're in a, like, state of ambiguity, right? Yeah, that yeah. happens, not just in prisons. It happens in schools and hospitals and in our society, we live in a panoptic society, which deprives us of our sovereignty and, 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 and takes us out of our own experiences where life is actually lived. But that, I'm sorry, man, I just keep jumping in. Dude, I love the bar and you're talking to these cats and they're like, you like quite appropriately know the relationship between prisons and school. And there's a point where that's just like, I gotta shut this down. Because yeah, man. You're about it's, to blow up their whole world, dude. You're well, about to so blow these, up their whole world. These guys, right? These guys are basically agreeing with each other that the public schools have become a disaster, like indoctrination for like state submission, right? 
They, they agree on this. They agree. And when I humbly suggest that like perhaps homeschooling is the, is the better solution, like just practically speaking right now and whatever, I threw out a couple ideas and I'm like, and do kids really need to go to school past like grade eight if they genuinely don't want to? You know what I mean? And shit like this. I threw a couple things at him. And of course, I probably threw too much at him. You know, coming back to the theme of how do you talk to people that more or less buy into what they're told? And, you know, apparently these are two guys that don't buy into everything they're told. But when I suggested like homeschooling, they both fell immediately back to the whole, well, kids really do need to be socialized. And like, you know, my time in school, I had such good times. And, and I, I'm like, yeah, but you were held there against your will. And like kids can still get these socialization, you know, it, 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 it doesn't have to be in a prison. <laughs> you know, there's, there's plenty of other options, a, a thousand other options, but it's just interesting because they were willing to admit that there are major, like, underlying problems but when i suggest a not even that radical of a solution you know homeschool solution both of them unanimously said well no like that's not a good solution we need public schools i said maybe but not government schools well there's an like it is an interesting thing to turn over in one's head i mean what i would say in terms of is that people socialize despite and not because of these, you know, I benefited in many ways greatly from a university education college was one of the best times of my life. I'm not going to sit here and deny that. Right. But what was good about those times was not a consequence of the institution per se. It was a consequence of the people at the institution. Mm-hmm. And the best times weren't had necessarily in the classroom itself. It was in the conversations and so forth. Sometimes it was in the classroom, but again, it wasn't tied in a quite like from a, it was not a logically necessary connection, right? And similarly with schools more generally, right? And there's this fantastic book, Deschooling Society by Ivan Illich. Uh, If you haven't read it, check it out, man, right? Because what he indicates and notes is that this is the thing is like, you just, it's amazing how many things we believe and we don't even know that we believe them, right? Like I read this book about a year and a half ago for the first time. It wasn't like, I just, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty disillusioned cat. And like, but even I sometimes can be like, what the, oh my God, I can't believe it, right? And he just like laid this bomb on me that childhood is an invention. It is an invention of modernity. I kind of agree. I've I've been I've been teasing out this idea, but I've never hit I've never thought it through so concisely. But I have said in so many ways that we should stop treating children like children, you know. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off, no, but I I mean that's that's the thing. And it's not that I mean it's not that there aren't, you know, developmental distinctions between the four-year-old and a 14-year-old and a 44-year-old. Of course, right? of course. That's obvious. But, it's sufficiently obvious that you shouldn't always have to define it strictly, okay? Right. But what we, it's this privileging of this interval 
And, 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 and he also connects it to class relationship. He's like, look, here's the thing. The notion of a childhood is a bourgeois privilege, which is true really, even in certain parts of the world up to today, but in the privileged West, true really through the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, in Mexico in 1917, all right, or 1923, you are an effectively autonomous adult by the time you're 14. Mm -hmm. All right. Not that it's announced in that way. Okay. But it's just like, okay, here you go. You show people how to do things and then they do them. They learn to work the land or, you know, this was kind of my whatnot, this, right? this was know? kind of my argument with do we need anything beyond an eighth grade education? Well, see, we've been conditioned to believe that there needs to be some kind of central authority mm. because if there isn't a central authority, then you're going to have these fragmentary, isolated, bizarre situations popping up and exhibiting a, a, some kind of demonic influence, right? Well, if you if you don't have if you have homeschooling then they will like provide you that, well, then you're just gonna have some, you know, lunatic parents who have abusive relationships with their children, teaching them bad things or to create a cult. And then that cult is gonna do some kind of violence to society at large, right? So it's actually like the fallacy of mistaking the part for the whole, or another way of putting it is a fallacy of mistaking a, a, a misuse of something for its actual use, right? You can use a knife to kill someone but that doesn't mean that the proper use of the knife isn't to prepare sushi, okay? So yes, obviously in a homeschooling context, you can have aberrant scenarios, but those aberrant scenarios are not normative. And they're not, neither are they normative, they're also not representative. And in our specific context, homeschooling parents tend to be more conscientious than I don't mean that, by the way, to then like derogate people who aren't homeschooling their children, right? But the point right. is that the institution is of the, the, the practice of homeschooling is implicitly vilified because it undermines the belief that there's some kind of need for authority and especially central authority to protect us from the evil people in the world, the, the, the dark ones. Like, okay. And I'm saying that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. okay it's bullshit all right and and i'm not saying that there aren't dark people in the world doing terrible things because there are but you don't need a central authority to protect yourself against those kinds of people what you need is real community real that's what community. you need real community and real community is disserved structurally disserved by reliance on institutions especially institutions of any scale because once you get to a certain scale, which isn't that high up, it doesn't really matter who you are. You're just a cog, mm -hmm. just a cog. And or a dollar bill or a dollar bill. Probably really, both. That's all it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. You are an asset, a human resource, right? It's, a, it's like, it's like a, it's a, it's a comically honest euphemism. Okay. That doesn't happen in real relationship. The thing is that's encouraging about human beings is that they often form and have grand relationships with each other despite and not because of these institutions. I fully, fully agree. 
because all the places I've seen like true community have been sort of, as you say, in spite of, not because of, you know, it's like I had my time in the national parks and I was lucky enough that I wasn't at the Grand Canyon where there are a couple thousand employees and interns. I was at a place called Capitol Reef where there, you know, at, at peak season, there were probably 35 people on staff and all the drama of that community was certainly at, <laughs> at all times exacerbated, if not caused by the fact that we were in this bureaucratic structure. And if we had just been a community of people in that space, I imagine there would have been a hell of a lot less drama and I believe the job would have gotten done better in some regards. Um, you know, the issues of, ah, we won't even go there, but like, I guess I, I was about to bring up just like my struggle of the ideas of public land and um, anarchy. And there's always like competing interests and it comes back to sort of this individual versus the community um, dichotomy that we so often like get hung up on which is why I think the uh, anarcho-communist combination is so interesting and I'm trying to like understand it better. Uh, but I guess I'm interested if you could to explain in a, I don't know, however you want to, what anarchy sort of means in a practical sense to you. Um, I don't know, just any thoughts, any thoughts? Well, To me, anarchism is the commitment to live without illusion. All right. The state and corporations and institutions, right? And I don't even like the word the state because it implies that there's this monolithic leviathan. Okay, mm. and it's not a monolithic leviathan, right? The government is a complicated bureaucracy, and, and you know, the government is not the same thing as the state, okay? But, um, and, and, and it would be disingenuous to pretend that that bureaucracy doesn't at times serve certain positive functions that, like the parade example is the, the post office, right? Um, you know, or even the National Park Service is in many ways salutary because it provides a kind of a kind of a, a, a limit on the, the insane excesses of uh, capitalism and which they want to just like um, just ravage the planet uh, in, in ways which sometimes just like beggar imagination and, it's, it's uh, intrinsically um, intrinsic intrinsically um valuable without without being capitalistically valuable so to speak so yeah i that's that's the that's the argument for government is like or at least these these functions right. of government it's it's a service that wouldn't otherwise be provided 
Right. But that's, I mean, that's the argument. I would say it's ultimately an empty argument, okay? Mm -hmm. Because these services really without exception can be provided without government. Even, you know, um, but now we're just, we're just in a, we're just in a rough spot right now. Okay. We're in a rough spot um, because our dependency isn't even just on government. Like in a way, if it was, that would be simpler. It really mm -hmm. would. But we have dependencies now on this whole apparatus. And I just ran across this phrase recently by this guy, um, Ian Davis out of England, right? The global public private partnership, right? Where the dependency is not just on the state apparatus, but on these various corporate actors, right? Amazon. Amazon, Kroger. Walmart. Yeah, Kroger. Okay. Yeah. You know, and people need food, right? Mm -hmm. And we've become so alienated, so distant, so distanced from like the real ground, like from which the food arises. That, that, that these are existentially necessary for people. It would not be reasonable for us to then like tell people, okay, you can't go to the grocery store anymore, okay? But we can't just like throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we need to find a way of reconstellating all this. And I don't think I have like all the answers, right? Okay. Um, but I feel like, like I heard this quote Okay, let's come back to your question about like, what is anarchy? Okay, and there's like a few phrases around anarchy that I think might like I can summarize in just like a pithy little moment where I'm mm -hmm. trying to convey and why I am committed and become more anarchist every day. Okay? Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, like I thought I was radical when this start, things started going really haywire to you. I'm even more like, man, fucking a okay <laughs> right like burn it down you know whatever i shouldn't say stuff like that right? uh, yeah 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 don't burn it down but let it crumble let's say let it crumble all right okay but it's like, <laughs> um but uh the one thing i heard and i've all places i actually heard this it's actually originally in cervantes and don quixote but i actually heard it in a in a marvel movie of all places right you know but the truth, you can find it everywhere. And is that this is this is a fantastic line. It's fantastic. Especially now. Especially now. The fact is the enemy of the truth. Okay? And I'm on the side of truth, not on the side of facts. All right. And then the other, the other thing, which is like this famous slogan from 1968, the, the student uprisings in the universities in 1968, be realistic, demand the impossible. Okay. So I'm a, I'm a bloody human being, man. All right. I'm here for a finite interval. And so I am going to do my best to live in accord with those propositions. So you know what? I'm not about what's pragmatic or probable, all right? I'm not about what's likely, all right? I'm about what's deeply true and what is impossible. Because you know, it is in the realm of impossibility that we can find emancipation from this world. Wow. This world in which we are now situated. A, a world 
of bizarre and diseased constraints, irrationality, and a deeply poisonous story. It tells us that we are bad for ourselves and for each other. We're not bad. We're good. You're listening to this. Let me tell you right now, you are fundamentally good. The world is fundamentally good. We are fundamentally good. And do not for a minute buy into the absolutely despicable narrative which suggests otherwise. Are there problems with the planet? Are there environmental issues? Yes. But those environmental issues are not the consequence of human beings. They are consequences of systems. Mm. The only people who are in a position to dissolve those systems are people, by the way. All right? So if you want to get rid of the people, I mean, you're just talking about impoverishing the universe. You have to, because, because you have to return to that faith in your fundamental positivity. I mean, real positivity. One of the implications of real positivity is that you leave authority at the door, all right? Authority is good until you're about 12 years old. And then you learn to stand on your own two feet and use your own mind and your own heart, all right? I know I'm like, I'm just like, I thought I was listening to a podcast, not going to church, right? Oh, I did my whole podcast. But, My podcast is church, brother. Right. Like that's what it's about, man. Right. Like, thank you. I mean, that's a good sermon. About is belief that you are positive, the world is positive. Uh, you know, shit happens, but we can figure it out, and we don't yeah. need someone telling us how to do it. We can do it on our own. By the way, if you know, you know, probably the people in your life who aren't constantly telling you what to do. They may be very well-intended, but they're often the very same people who make life unnecessarily difficult. And I'd like you to think about what that means. You think that through. Okay, I'm done, man. You're letting me rant here. I'm ranting. I'm ranting. Oh, man, it's an interesting thought. Like, you said that you're not about being pragmatic. You're about the truth. And part of me has always argued things from a pragmatic or I've tried to argue from a pragmatic point of view to say like, basically the ultimate form of socialism is like libertarian anarchy or even anarcho-communism because it's the only true recognition recognition of personhood of complete personhood like arguing with these guys at the bar tonight we were talking about taxes at one point and they agreed you know i like made the argument the only maybe justifiable tax to me is like a voluntary tax like a use tax or a sales tax but to tax property or income is to tax your personhood and that was a little bit like they kind of agreed, but they were kind of like they hadn't quite heard it said that way. And um, it's amazing that this stuff is is too challenging for people, I guess, because we've been so conditioned to accept authority. And you proposed the theme of how to how to talk how to talk to people who 
submit to the authority in essence. Yes, I, I did so propose I'm, it, and, and I guess I, I probably because I don't I don't know. I'm working you through it myself, and I mean, I'm sorry you, I even going off here. No, man, that's right? cool. I'm like, it's interesting but, though because you already said at one point you're like you don't even know if you can have a conversation with those kinds of people, and I feel similarly because it's like exhausting to try to take myself into their shoes and translate things in a way that might make sense when it's kind of like, what's the point? Like, well, I mean, there is that element of where are you going to invest your energy? Mm -hmm. And then you get into the question of just, you live and it sounds so corny and inadequate, right? But it's almost that you just have to live by example. Right, like you're never going to you're never going to sway them with an argument, or very rarely. Okay, you know what? It's like you let your craziness out there. You say, "Oh my God, this guy is a friggin' nut." Okay, but then you like live your life as a fulfilled or you know striving human being, and it, that does create a certain incongruity. And then they have to wrestle with that. They have to wrestle with that. How can how can this be possible? There's this person. He's seemingly, you know, reasonable and he's, you know, leading a decent life. But then I ask him what he thinks about this. And he's like, oh my gosh, like, how can he believe that? You know, and they had to deal with that, that dissonance, right? That cognitive dissonance, right? So maybe that's the thing is you don't go out of your way to try and like change their mind. You, you, you make them aware that you believe what you believe and then you live in a perfectly you know, exemplary fashion, and then they have to, they have to deal with that. They have to deal with that. You are defying the stereotype. Yeah. Like if that's the guy, if that's what people who went to, who wear tinfoil caps look like, I want to be a guy who wears a tinfoil cap. <laughs> you know, I am trying to like almost, yeah, totally. I totally agree. Like make it cool, man. Like, right. Like, cause it's not crazy to feel this way. It's not crazy to feel like we've submitted too much and like it's time to take it back you know that's like absolutely that's, that's always crazy. been punk rock man like where is punk rock right now we need to turn it up a notch you know crank it up domesticated right you know yeah punk has been domesticated it has you know, we, need, yeah. we need new punk okay we i've heard it said punk. like liberty liberty is the new punk i forget who said that recently but that's that's you know well, the other thing we need, and I probably have to go through, but the other thing we need, man, and I, I know we've just been kind of like free flowing here, and you've been uh, giving me a. Uh oh. You're you're frozen, brother. Hmm. Hold on one second. Oh, there you are. Wait, are you coming back? Yeah. Yeah, there you are. Can you hear me yet? Yeah, I can hear you. All right. I guess we just had a hiccup. Yeah. Is that all right? Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, just to sort of, so I guess like in a way that is the, the quote unquote answer to the question is that you believe what you're going to believe. You be honest about that. But then you just live your life. 
and allow the example of your life to sow seeds of cognitive dissonance in people so that then they have to deal with that. They have to deal with the incommensurability of who and what you are and then what they're told they're supposed to think about you. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, just leading a healthy life and not getting vaccinated, that creates like a problem for people. <laughs> I was like, wait, it dude's like, it dude's like healthy. It dude no. like goes and like sends like five, 11, five, 12 rock sends and he's, he hits the gym and he's benching 400 and it, what? What? Okay. How you, how you deal with that? How you deal with that? Yeah. How do you deal with the suggestion that healthy people don't go to the doctor? How about that, right? Think about that. You don't go to the doctor unless you're sick. So if you think you have to go to the doctor, does that mean you think that you're sick? All right? I'm not giving you an answer to the question. I'm just saying, think that through. Think it through. Use your mind. But I wanted to, I just wanted to finish by saying another thing, which we didn't, haven't really even explored, I don't know if you can still hear me. Um, I can, because yeah, yeah, yeah. But is relationship between the analog and the digital, right? Obviously, we're taking advantage of that even in this interview, but mm-hmm. we really need to scale that back, right? Mm-hmm. Our reliance on digital technology has been absolutely deleterious. Mm-hmm. We need to remember what it's like to be people hanging out with other people. Yeah. Preferably, preferably, preferably out in the forest someplace, right? Like, you know, I mean, I, I think that so many people are starved for community, both with each other and with mother earth, like, and, uh, you know, I hope on that note that like, at some point we'll find ourselves in the same city. If you come out to Indy, you let me know, but also, also that's not to say I'm, I'm feeling like, you said you got to run, but um, feel like I feel like this conversation is just getting started. So maybe we do a part two uh, in the yeah. not, not too distant future here. You know, we can uh, maybe even you know next week or whenever, like sooner rather than later. I'm sorry, I have to go. No, um, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we'll find a time. But yeah, I think it'd be worth talking some more because um, we definitely just scratched the surface, but. You know, it's always good. I, you know, I, I hate to like, just feel like I'm, you know, uh, reaffirming myself by, by meeting people, but it's kind of serendipitous more than anything. It seems like more and more people than I, than I ever would have realized, um, sort of think along these lines, even if they're at the very, very beginning stages of it, um, you know, it's been, it's been easy to feel like nobody else thinks this way, but I know that's not true. So. Yeah. I mean, that's such a vital point. And uh, it's part of why I was saying we need to lean more toward the analog away from the digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a picture of reality that we're fed and then there's reality. And there's mm-hmm. a great chasm between those terms. And we need to, we need to leverage the implications of that chasm. And it's, 
you know, a lot of it is just mindlessness. Like there's just a lot of it at the root of a lot of our present problems is just this sort of tragic oblivion, you know? So, uh, but, but I mean, I'm going to stop myself before I start going on again, because obviously once I get going, I'm like, okay. So, but you know, um, I think I know what you mean by tragic oblivion though. Like there's a lot of walking zombies out there and it's really kind of sad to see, but people are, uh, you know, nobody's doomed to that fate forever. So. Well, thank you so much, Michael. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, I'll have you get, get you on, get my, get me on my YouTube channel. I'll get you on my YouTube channel too. Well, you know, I can send you, uh, the file for this probably somehow. And if you're wanting to share it through your YouTube, uh, yes, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. And, uh, I'm just going to use it as a podcast. I might pull some clips, but yeah, I'd be happy to share. So thank you. Can I, can I answer any other question or do anything else for you? Well, you know, I, I had some notes. I don't know if I need them, but let's see if there's anything of value. Okay. If you, if you have just a couple more minutes, I am interested if you would give your thoughts on jigsaw puzzles and Jenga. Oh, that stuff. Right. So is that too much? Is that too much in a short time or no, no, it's been a while since I should do another video. Like I'm just curious because Uh, you, I watched the videos, but, um, I'd be curious if you would summarize. Yeah. Well, I just, the, the answer is sort of more generally, I just love games and I just think games have just so much, you know, to, 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 to teach us. Right. You know, so like, and this is a lot of the same, same things I mentioned in the video, but like Jenga, right? We are, well, what's philosophically interesting about Jenga? Well, actually, lots of things if you're willing to pay attention. So just to give like one example, you think, okay, here you have a series of more or less uniformly cut blocks, mm-hmm. okay? And what you have is a kind of deference in that form to what uh, somebody called Edmund Husserl termed the mathematization of nature. The idea that basically our world can be reduced to an abstraction. But when you actually get down to playing a game of Jenga seriously, that lie of radical abstraction is exposed because no two Jenga sets are in fact the same. Every block has its own uniqueness in its texture and in its weight, slight weight variances and so forth. And so like when you're trying to like take it out or put it in, it all sort of like comes out like, oh, it's not all the same. They look the same, but it's not the same. And that's reality. Reality has a texture which cannot be grasped by abstraction. Not to say abstraction isn't deeply powerful and part itself of reality, but it's not the whole story. And the other and the uh, so, but I mean, you're like, you can pull that out of or like jigsaw puzzles. You get, I say like somewhere around 750, you get like this point where what's good about them 
is that if you're going to finish a jigsaw puzzle that's more than you know 750 pieces you at one point have to make a decision of will <laughs> like i am i'm going to do this god damn i'm going to do this thing yeah all right yeah. it's going to be tedious at moments it's going to be desperate i'm going to be possessed by an anxiety that i'm missing a piece until it's complete you know right up until the end and then you do it and it's solved and there's like a real value in that in, in committing yourself to something like that it's like you do it every day okay but you know i think everyone should do that at some point get a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and do it hmm. and uh I don't know, like I, uh, if you've ever done like a large jigsaw puzzle, but um, I mean, people can get like out there with it, right? Like five, ten thousand pieces. Like I'm tapping out at one thousand, right? So I, I won't have the, the the lessons of the five thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. Right? I can't even imagine but, that. But big of a doing puzzle, a thousand yeah. piece jigsaw puzzle, which is about the size of a desk calendar, basically will provide you with a, like an opportunity to learn about your own capacity for sort of willed sustained commitment you can't do it in a day i mean some I mean, maybe some people can right it's but most people you're looking Damn it. at i'm 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 tempted weeks. i'm tempted to take that as as a fucking challenge right don't there. try and do it in a day okay <laughs> your eyes will, will not for your eyes yeah, you're probably right. Eye strain. Yeah, yeah. Give you give yourself. You do it in a week. That's itself. Like, of course, it depends on which one you get. They're they're not all created equal. Like, I just did one. It was absolutely the worst I'd ever done. It was someone gave it to me. It was a, a painting of a Renoir, and it was all these modeled colors, and there's no sharp line. It's dark. It's like. Ugh! yeah 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 but, so get one that the colors pop a little bit with relatively clear lines if, it's, if you've never done one so you're not just endlessly tortured right <laughs> but um you know but any game has something to teach you any yeah. game is something to teach you chess all the classic games right mm -hmm. go where you go that's the great and that's sort of maybe like a window into a different culture is the game of go um, because it's a game that you can't play quickly. I'm not even familiar with Go. Go, also known as, oh, it's, I think in Japan they call it Ego, and then in um, China it's like it, it's, it's their chess, right? It, it's the chess of East Asia. Like, it, like people play chess here, it's that sort of proportionally common over in Asia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think they call it Weixi, Weixi or something like that in, uh, in China. And it's called Baduk in Korea. And the, the, the game of seeming simplicity is played on a grid. The standard board is 19 by 19. You play, take turns placing black and white stones, trying to encircle as much territory as possible. Um, but... Uh, you, in fact, they were only able recently to, to only in like the past four or five years were they able to find a computer program that could play it against a competent human opponent. 
Um, mm. There's a documentary on Netflix about it, AlphaGo, which raises all sorts of interesting questions. Alpha um, guilt? Go. Alpha, Alpha Go. Go. I'm sorry. On yeah, okay. I might check that out. That's that sounds, out. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, because what I argue is that no computer program ever plays a game. They're just running code, right? Mm-hmm. They, they can't play games because they're not sentient. Um, so there's a list of few, which that, you know, games, a whole other Paul latch. Well, you know, maybe we talk more about that next time or, uh, yeah, man, or, we can talk about that or anything else we feel like. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I'd be commanded by the moment. <laughs> I'm all about it, man. Well, it, was good. it was really good to meet you. Um, you know, it took us a couple of weeks to make this happen, but honestly, let's make it happen again soon. Yes. For sooner real. Rather than later. Absolutely. Michael. Thank you so all right. much. All right. Talk to you soon. Have a good night. This has been Mike the Polymath with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Come back again.